Las Vegas is built on dreams. Whether it's the people who travel to the city every year dreaming of scoring a big jackpot, or the investors, developers, designers, and architects who dream of having their next big project come to life here on the world-famous Vegas Strip. Unfortunately, not every dream comes true. From a resort based on a disastrous maiden voyage, to a hotel and casino built around professional wrestling, to what would have been the first ever mega resort, and many, many more. The history of Las Vegas is filled with these so-called shattered dreams. And that's what this episode of Sin City Stories is all about, as we go on a deep dive into some Las Vegas history and share what might have been. Since its founding on May 15, 1905, Las Vegas has gone from being a small railway stop on the Union Pacific Line in the middle of the Mojave Desert to the entertainment capital of the world and one of the most exciting cities on the planet, welcoming millions of visitors every year. And through its relatively short history, the city has seen some pretty interesting things. And that's what I'm here to share with you. Welcome to Sin City Stories, the fascinating, bizarre, and sometimes tragic history of fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. The year was 1997, and professional wrestling was massive. The World Wrestling Federation, later to become known as World Wrestling Entertainment, or WWE, was one of the hottest tickets on the planet. TV ratings for its weekly program, Monday Night Raw, were sky high, and live events around the world were consistently sold out, drawing tens of thousands of fans everywhere they appeared. This success was thanks to Vince McMahon, the company's chairman and CEO, who had recently made the decision to take the company in a new direction. Spurred on by his competition at World Championship Wrestling, aka WCW, McMahon wanted to get away from the old-school wrestlers, who were more like cartoon characters, and focus on an edgier product with more realistic characters and storylines. With that, the WWE moved into what would become known as the Attitude Era, and thanks to rising stars like Stone Cold Steve Austin, the Degeneration X Faction, and The Rock, along with writing from famed wrestling booker Vince Russo that was described as Crash TV, which often included profanity, sexual innuendo, and unexpected heel turns, there seemed to be no limit to what the WWE could accomplish. The company was on the rise. After several years of relatively low revenue and ratings losses at the hands of WCW, WWE was finally in a good place. And Vince McMahon, never one to sit still, was on the lookout for new ventures to which he could attach the WWE brand. And in August of 1998, Vince took the first step towards taking a serious gamble on Las Vegas. Las Vegas and pro wrestling weren't exactly strangers at that time. The WWF had hosted what was considered to be its most opulent WrestleMania ever at Caesars Palace in April of 1993. Just shy of 17,000 people paid approximately $1.1 million to attend WrestleMania 9, which was the first ever WrestleMania to be held entirely outdoors. The arena had been set up to look like a Roman Coliseum, 
and featured Roman guards, trumpeters, announcers in togas, and several live animals, including a camel on which famed WWE color commentator and manager Bobby the Brain Heenan made his entrance. WCW had also put in a significant amount of time in Vegas. At that time, their annual Halloween-themed pay-per-view event, Halloween Havoc, had been held at the MGM Grand Garden Arena at the MGM Grand Hotel for the previous two years and would go on to be hosted there up until the event's final running in October of 2000. But Vince McMahon had his sights set on something bigger than a singular live event, or even an annual pay-per-view event. Vince wanted to create a destination for wrestling fans, a place where people could not only take in live events, but a place where they could also stay and play, and maybe even run into a few of their favorite WWE superstars. Located about a block east of Las Vegas Boulevard, just north of where the Wynn Golf Course now sits, is 305 Convention Center Drive, which started life in 1970 as the Royal Inn, a small 200-room hotel that was built for a cost of approximately $3 million. In 1983, following a change in ownership, the hotel was closed and reopened as the Paddle Wheel Hotel and Casino, a family-friendly resort that featured arcade games and amusement rides, but later shifted to a more adult focus, which included bringing in a male review show. Unfortunately, the owners of the Paddle Wheel couldn't service their debt, and the property was shut down and went to auction in 1992. Enter Academy Award and Golden Globe-nominated actress Debbie Reynolds. She and her then-husband Richard Hamlet bought the former paddle wheel for just $2.2 million. Reynolds intended to spend several million dollars to renovate the property, including adding a museum to house her collection of Hollywood memorabilia and a 500-seat theater where she would perform. Initially, Reynolds laid out just over $2 million of her own money to get the renovation started. And in 1994, her hotel company went public, which allowed her to raise a further seven to eight million dollars to put towards completing the renovations. And her museum, which was intended to be one of the big draws of the property, finally opened in 1995. Unfortunately, the Debbie Reynolds Hollywood Hotel suffered from years of serious mismanagement from extravagant spending that resulted in a negative cash flow of upwards of $450,000 per month to the fact that the company had never secured a gaming license in the state of Nevada, instead renting their casino out to a local gaming company which paid rent for use of the space. That company, Jackpot Enterprises, pulled out of the property in 1996 due to a lack of profits. And due to the hotel company's poor finances, Reynolds was unable to get a gaming license herself. After deals to attract new capital fell through and a planned sale to a Phoenix-based timeshare developer collapsed, the resort was no longer able to pay its bills, and creditors started suing. In July 1997, the resort declared bankruptcy, and shortly thereafter, Debbie Reynolds herself declared personal bankruptcy. Flash forward to August 1998. Following two failed offers to purchase the property, the decision was made to put the former Debbie Reynolds Hollywood Hotel up for auction. When all was said and done, the World Wrestling Federation and its parent company, Titan Sports, managed to secure the property for the bargain price of just $10 million, with the plan of building a WWF-themed hotel and casino in the entertainment capital of the world. 
In a statement following the purchase, the WWF said that getting into the hotel and casino business was, quote, a logical expansion of the WWF brand, calling it a new venue in which to entertain our fans. We're excited to get the plans developed for renovation of the property and inject some WWF attitude into Las Vegas. The WWF had big ideas for their new toy. They wanted to host daily pro wrestling matches featuring developmental and lower tier talent, appearances and events featuring current WWF superstars, and even employ retired superstars as greeters within the resort. WWF-themed amenities and shops were in the works, including an Undertaker tattoo parlor, a Sable lingerie shop, and even Stone Cold Steve Austin gaming chips featuring the iconic Smoking Skull logo. To get fans excited for the resort, the WWF produced a sizzle reel featuring computer-generated images and video of what the proposed property would look like. It showed the exterior, which included a large silver hotel tower emblazoned with a massive WWF logo, and also did a walkthrough of the property from the main entrance into the casino area, which was to be filled with video screens showing WWF events, as well as WWF set pieces and artifacts placed throughout. Vince McMahon, ever the promoter, had even come up with a slogan for his new endeavor. Cause life is one big crapshoot. Unfortunately for WWF fans, things never really went beyond the planning stages. A little over a year after purchasing the property and reviewing exactly what they'd gotten themselves into, the WWF made the decision to bail out of the project. Reasons for doing so included the location. The property on Convention Center Drive was far from the main action of the Las Vegas Strip, and there was concern about a potential lack of traffic for the resort. Size. The property itself was, quote, too small for the vision and wouldn't be able to accommodate the scope of events that the WWF wanted to host. Upon further investigation, they also found that the property wouldn't be suited for the new 35-story, thousand-room hotel tower they wanted to build or the 50,000-square-foot casino and the timeshare owners. The existing resort was home to several timeshare property owners, and according to the bylaws, the WWF would need permission from 75% of the owners to move forward with any demolition and construction. In the end, it was decided it would just be easier for the WWF to sell the property outright and potentially start fresh somewhere else in the future. In late December 2000, the World Wrestling Federation announced they'd sold the property for $11.2 million, or roughly $1.2 million more than they'd paid for it in 1998, meaning they'd managed to pull a profit. And although the WWF never ended up building their themed resort in Las Vegas, Vince McMahon did eventually expand the brand into real estate and themed attractions. From 1999 to 2002, Times Square in New York City was the home of WWF New York, later simply called The World, a themed restaurant, nightclub, and arcade that also played host to various WWF and WWE events. And in 2002, WWE signed a licensing agreement with a Niagara Falls, Ontario hotel to open WWE Niagara Falls, a gift shop that sold WWE merchandise, played host to events featuring WWE talent, and featured a drop tower ride called The Pile Driver. WWE Niagara Falls was in operation until 2009. So what eventually became of the Las Vegas property that was to be the home of the WWF Hotel and Casino? 
After it was purchased in 2000, it was remodeled into the Greek Isles Hotel and Casino, which it operated as from 2001 to 2009. In 2007, while it was the Greek Isles, it was sold for $48.8 million, with plans for redevelopment as a mixed-use facility with new hotel rooms, a large casino, and convention, retail, and restaurant space. That redevelopment never happened, and in mid-2009, the ownership was forced into bankruptcy. In August 2009, the property was sold and the new ownership rebranded it as a Clarion Hotel in April 2013. The Clarion Las Vegas shut down permanently following Labor Day weekend 2014, and it was sold to developer Lorenzo Dumani, whose family has a long and storied history in Las Vegas, having run the iconic El Morocco and La Concha hotels. In February 2015, Dumani imploded the Clarion Hotel. with plans for a new luxury resort development, The Majestic. With a planned budget of $850 million, The Majestic will be a non-gaming hotel featuring 700 suites, six restaurants, multiple sky suites, and a medical wellness spa and fitness facility. Construction on The Majestic is slated to begin in late 2021 with plans for completion in 2024. Far, wherever you are, I believe that the heart does go on. Those lyrics will be forever associated with the Celine Dion hit, My Heart Will Go On, from the soundtrack to the epic James Cameron film, Titanic. Titanic, a love story centered around the doomed maiden voyage of the famed ship of the same name starred Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. The film was released to theaters in December of 1997 and went on to be a massive smash success. After pulling in over $28 million on its opening weekend, the film remained at the top of the North American box office charts for 15 straight weeks, a record for any film, and stayed in theaters in North America for 10 months. When the film finally closed at theaters in October of 1998, it had grossed over $600 million in North America and an additional $1.2 billion elsewhere around the world, leading it to become the highest grossing film of all time worldwide, a title it held onto for 12 years until Titanic was dethroned by another James Cameron film, Avatar. The movie was released to home video in September of 1998 on VHS and Laserdisc, selling 58 million copies worldwide in its first three months of release, grossing $995 million. It was released on DVD on August 31, 1999, and it went on to become the first DVD ever to sell 1 million copies. Keep in mind that this was a time when less than 5% of households in the US actually owned a DVD player. In addition to being a commercial success, Titanic was a critical success as well. The film began its award sweep in early 1998, starting with the Golden Globes, where it was nominated for eight awards and won four, including Best Director and Best Motion Picture Drama. It was then nominated for 14 Academy Awards, of which it won 11, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Song for My Heart Will Go On, which also went on to win four Grammy Awards for Record of the Year, Song of the Year, Best Song Written for a Motion Picture, and Best Female Pop Vocal Performance. 
So at this point, you're probably asking yourself, what does any of this have to do with Las Vegas? Don't worry, we're getting there. Titanic had caught the attention of famed Vegas casino owner, professional gambler, and entrepreneur Bob Stupak. Stupak was the brains behind Bob Stupak's Vegas World, a space-themed resort that he'd opened in 1979 that had featured an extensive collection of space memorabilia, including rocket sculptures and a replica of the Apollo lunar module and a life-size astronaut, both of which hung from the ceiling. The hotel featured a spaceport-themed check-in lobby with mirrored walls and a black interior that was accompanied by stars and plastic columns filled with bubbling colored liquid. Other items on display included what was claimed to be genuine moon rocks, which Stupak said he'd gotten from the Nicaraguan government. And from the non-space-related world, the casino displayed $1 million in cash, which tourists could have their photos taken with. In 1989, Stupak had plans for a new 1,000-foot-tall sign tower for Vegas World that would be built on property adjacent to the resort. The idea eventually evolved to include an elevator leading up to an observation deck at the top of the tower. Stupak wanted the tower to become a local landmark, like the Eiffel Tower in Paris or the Space Needle in Seattle. Stupak officially revealed plans for the $50 million project in February of 1990 and in April of that year, Las Vegas City Council approved it. By October of 1991, the cost of the project had grown to over $100 million, and Stupak was trying to obtain financing from investors, all while being under investigation for using deceptive ad tactics to lure people to his Vegas World Resort. Groundbreaking for the project, known as the Stratosphere Tower, took place on November 5, 1991, and construction began in February of 1992. Stupak closed his famed Vegas World Resort in 1995 to allow the hotel towers to be renovated and integrated into the project. Following several setbacks, including a fire on the half-finished tower, issues with crane assembly, financial problems, objections from the FAA, and a motorcycle crash that left Stupak in a coma for 12 days, the Stratosphere was eventually completed, opening up with a lavish VIP celebration on April 30, 1996. Never one to sit still, Stupak already had his sights set on other projects, and just three months following the opening of the Stratosphere, amid allegations of disagreements with other board members and issues with the direction the resort was going, he resigned as chairman of the Stratosphere Corporation. Flash forward to spring 1999. On March 30th of that year, the Las Vegas Sun reported that Bob Stupak had bought roughly 100,000 shares, or about 0.31% of the outstanding shares, in a company called RMS Titanic Inc., a publicly held corporation that exhibits actual artifacts from the sunken ship. In a filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission, Stupak revealed that he'd met the company's president to discuss future projects and that he intended to, quote, acquire a significant amount of stock in the future, which may be in excess of 5% of the outstanding shares. In the filing, Stupak said he believed that artifacts recovered from the Titanic have such a meaningful historical value that they shouldn't be subject to sale to the private sector and that instead, quote, should be maintained to honor all those who perished and survived aboard the Titanic and all their descendants. Stupak said he could make available to the company a traditionally dignified place to display any artifacts. Some might argue that wasn't exactly true. 
Stupak had plans in mind for a Titanic-themed Las Vegas resort. Set on 10 acres of land near downtown Las Vegas, the resort would feature a full-sized replica of the Titanic with 1,200 rooms available, the Iceberg Hotel, Casino, and Convention Center with another 2,500 rooms available, the Glacier Palace, a 22,000-seat arena for concerts, shows, and events, as well as a public ice rink and nightclub, the Crystal Dome Theater, featuring 22 movie theaters and four IMAX theaters with interactive simulation. The Polar Palace, an aquatic museum and petting zoo featuring whales, penguins, walruses, dolphins, and polar bears, as well as its own thrill ride, the Ice Jammer Roller Coaster. And the parking garage, which would actually be across Las Vegas Boulevard from the resort, would be designed to resemble Titanic's home port of Southampton, England. The total cost of the project? Somewhere in the neighborhood of $500 million. After New York investors gave the cold shoulder to the concept the previous year, Stupak planned to finance the resort by selling timeshares in the project. He would offer 800 of the Titanic's rooms for interval ownership at a price of about $29,000 each. Purchasers would get one week per year in the hotel a complete sellout to 40,000 buyers would raise roughly $1.2 billion. More than enough needed to build Titanic. But before he could go any further, Stupak needed approvals from the city. He already owned the land on which Titanic would sit, but he needed a change in zoning on the land to allow for the construction of a hotel. Stupak began his presentation to the commissioners with a video showing the sunken Titanic rising from its resting place at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean and landing on the Las Vegas Strip. The video then showed a shot of the proposed resort complete with all its amenities, while entertainer-slash-singer Robert Goulet provided the narration. Residents of the area provided their objections to the project, claiming that there would be traffic issues, that the resort didn't fit in with the area, and that it would lower property values in the surrounding neighborhoods. There were other issues as well. Alan Rubin, CEO of Los Angeles-based Titanic Resort, complained about copyright infringement issues, as did businessman Andrew Morocco, who claimed he'd established a website called HotelTitanic.com and the year prior had presented designs to various Las Vegans, including someone who'd shown the plans to Bob Stupak. In the end, city commissioners voted 5-0 to reject Stupak's proposal for a zoning change. In a last-ditch effort to keep the project alive, Stupak looked at trying to move the resort to a new location, the former site of the El Rancho Hotel, on the southwest corner of Las Vegas Boulevard and Sahara Avenue. That proposal was also rejected by city council. And, much like the real Titanic, Stupak's plans to bring the famed ocean liner to Las Vegas were sunk. Titanic did eventually make it to the Las Vegas Strip, just not in resort form. In 2008, Titanic, the artifact exhibition, opened up at the Luxor Las Vegas. The 25,000-square-foot attraction includes numerous items from the Titanic, including luggage, the ship's whistles, floor tiles from a first-class cabin, a window frame from the Veranda Cafe, and an unopened bottle of champagne with a 1900 vintage. Also featured is a piece of Titanic's hull and a full-scale reproduction of the ship's grand staircase and the promenade deck, complete with the frigid temperatures as felt on the night of Titanic's sinking, April 14, 1912. Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf, the sacred river ran, 
through caverns measureless to man, down to a sunless sea. This excerpt of the 18th century poem Kubla Khan, written by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, was the inspiration for what would have become the very first themed mega resort in Las Vegas. In Coleridge's mind, Xanadu was a dream place, a garden of delight, as conjured by Kubla Khan, the conqueror of China. That dream place and garden of delight was what the developers of the Xanadu wanted to offer up to their guests. In the mid-1970s, Las Vegas Boulevard was nothing like it is today. It still held some of its original feel of the early years, with small casinos, big neon signs, and low-rise hotel complexes slotted in between golf courses and large tracts of undeveloped land. Albeit, some properties were making steps forward in expansion. The Aladdin and Caesar's Palace were in the process of adding larger hotel towers, and further north on the Strip, Circus Circus, Sahara, and Riviera were also going vertical. Elsewhere along the boulevard, famed developer Kirk Kerkorian had built two resorts that were literal game-changers for Las Vegas. In 1969, the International Hotel, which would later become the Las Vegas Hilton and the Westgate Resort. And in 1973, the MGM Grand, which would later become Bally's. These two properties opened with over 2,000 rooms each, giant casinos, massive showrooms, and incredible amenities that were unmatched anywhere else in Las Vegas. This was the future. Xanadu Corporation, founded by Tandy McGinnis, had its sights set on a 48.6-acre plot of land at the very south end of the Strip, on the southwest corner of the intersection of Las Vegas Boulevard and Tropicana Avenue. At the time, there were only a few major properties south of Las Vegas Boulevard and Flamingo Road, those being the aforementioned Aladdin, the Hacienda, where Mandalay Bay currently sits, the Marina, where the present-day MGM Grand is, and the Tropicana. There were also two golf courses located on the south end of the Strip. A few years prior to Xanadu's planned development, the Tropicana had attempted to purchase the land across the street. Their intention was to build a second hotel tower for their resort across from the original tower and link the two sites via a bridge over Las Vegas Boulevard. Although they'd gotten permits for the construction, they were unable to secure funding, and that project failed. As architect, Xanadu Corporation hired Martin Stern Jr. to design their incredible new resort. Stern's fingerprints were all over Las Vegas. His first foray into the city had been in 1953 when he designed the low-rise room additions for the Sahara. This would form a long-standing relationship with the Sahara that would see Stern go on to design several more projects for the hotel. Stern designed a new tower for the Sands Hotel in 1964, a low-rise remodel for the Flamingo in 1967, and a 26-story high-rise for downtown Las Vegas's Mint Hotel in 1968. By the late 60s, Stern had established himself as one of the major resort architects in the country. In 1967 alone, he had nine different Las Vegas hotel projects in production, and in 1970, his firm had 13 projects in various stages of design or construction, including the Stardust, El Dorado, Landmark, Aladdin, Harrah's, and Circus Circus. But it was with the International Hotel that Stern truly changed the Vegas landscape. 
Just off the strip next to the convention center, it was built as an overscaled corporate block, and its setting was defined by its elaborate entrance, driveways, and parking lots, and not its location on the highway. Inside, the resort featured a series of international restaurants, as well as its gargantuan showroom, which would later become Elvis Presley's final Las Vegas venue. Stern's triform tower design for the International Hotel would eventually become the most imitated building on the Strip, providing the model for the Bellagio, the Mirage, Mandalay Bay, and Treasure Island. Two years later, Stern followed with the MGM Grand, with its giant entryway befitting the Hollywood image that defined the hotel's theme. With the MGM Grand, Stern developed another trademark design, towers where the top floors were wider than those below, to give the luxury suites more panoramic views. Inside, Stern went even further in creating what almost appeared to be a micro-city on the property, with its labyrinth of interconnected casinos, restaurants and shops, as well as the massive showrooms and theaters. So it seemed only fitting that Stern would be the one to design Xanadu. With an estimated cost of approximately $150 million, or roughly $700 million by today's standards, there were big plans for the resort, as evidenced by this description pulled directly from the Xanadu Corporation's prospectus for the project. The Xanadu is proposed as a 1,730-room international-class hotel and casino to be located on the Strip in Las Vegas, Nevada. Approaching the overwhelming Port Corsair, Attention is immediately focused upon the Firefalls, cascading waters which nearly stretch across the site penetrated by the red-orange licks of dancing flames. Upon entering the Xanadu, the soaring atrium, some 20 stories in height, capped by the shimmering essence of mirror and crystal above and down to the action and animation of the casino below, dominates and envelops the viewer. A lush garden fantasy of pergolas and gazebos located on the atrium deck overlooks the casino, setting the tone for the Xanadu theme. On the way to the restaurant core, one would stroll through the shopping area, which would be developed as a bazaar comprised of small shops and boutiques and tents, islands or kiosks, all inviting browsing and featuring activities such as artists and artisans creating the goods for sale. Specialty restaurants such as a Mongolian barbecue, Steakhouse, the Marco Polo, Continental Specialties, the Flaming Sword, Flambe Specialties, Forbidden City, Oriental Cuisine, along with a seafood specialty restaurant, complete with a giant aquarium wall, complemented by a variety of cocktail lounges and bars located with the Garden of Xanadu and casino areas. Themes and moods such as Samarkand, Shalimar, Kashmir, Shangri-La are envisioned, with a special intimacy utilizing such elements as magnificently gilded desert tents, soft cushions, and exotically costumed waitresses. A theater showroom with a thrust stage of greater viewing and audience involvement will seat approximately 1,500 persons with ease. The lounge adjoins a new multi-purpose concept discotheque, which not only serves as a late hours center of action, but as a buffet and cinema as well. The convention center will seat in excess of 3,000 people for a banquet, in addition to exhibit space in the reception hall. As part of this complex, meeting rooms of various sizes and potentials will also be provided. These and all other areas and aspects of the hotel and casino, while meeting all the highest standards and functional requirements of this most modern and complete facility, shall be carried out in a theme of the imaginative and make-believe dream world of Xanadu. 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 Xanadu.
Sounds pretty amazing, right? In February of 1976, McGinnis and the Xanadu Corporation applied for and received their permits from the Clark County Planning Commission to begin construction on Xanadu, and almost immediately found themselves in the middle of an argument with Las Vegas municipal authorities over construction of a new sewer line. In the original real estate property report, it was assumed that the city's existing lines could handle Xanadu with no issues, but the city insisted that the builders pay for a new sewer line that could accommodate the project along with any future expansion. Construction never began, and the original county building permit quietly lapsed. Two years later, in March of 1978, McGinnis again applied for a county building permit with the intention of getting the Xanadu project moving once again. But almost as soon as he requested a hearing for his application, his representatives requested the hearing be postponed, and Xanadu died a very quiet death. But just because Xanadu wasn't actually built, that doesn't mean that its influence wasn't felt elsewhere in Las Vegas. As the mega-resort trend took off, it's believed that several of the project's ideas were borrowed by other architects and integrated into their hotels. For example, the firefalls that would have greeted guests are believed to have inspired the famed volcano and waterfalls out front of the Mirage. The same giant atrium and slope room walls can be found inside the pyramid at the Luxor, and a similar Asiatic pleasure dome theme can be found inside areas of the Mirage and Mandalay Bay. As for the planned site of Xanadu, its future owners had much better luck with the property. The lot was eventually sold to Circus Circus Enterprises, the then-owners of the famed Circus Circus Hotel at the north end of the Vegas Strip. On June 19, 1990, they opened the medieval-themed Excalibur Hotel and Casino, which at the time of its opening was the largest hotel in the world, with 4,000 rooms covering 70 acres. And Excalibur's success in this location eventually led to further development on the south end of the Strip, with the later construction of the Luxor and Mandalay Bay Resorts. With WWF, the Titanic, and Xanadu, we've really only just scratched the surface. The history of Las Vegas is filled with dozens of other concepts for resorts and casinos that, for one reason or another, just never managed to make their way much past the drawing board stage. Maybe they were too expensive, too eccentric, or just simply a terrible idea. For example... In the early 1990s, Max Baer Jr., the actor best known for playing Jethro Bodine on the 1960s TV show The Beverly Hillbillies, obtained the licensing right for the show from CBS Studios. He first developed a line of Beverly Hillbillies slot machines. Then, thinking bigger, he came up with plans for a full-scale Beverly Hillbillies-themed resort, which would have included a giant oil derrick out front with a 20- to 30-foot flame, Granny's Kitchen restaurant, and, of course, a cement pond for swimming. The project ran into several legal roadblocks and was suspended. Developers also made an attempt to bring another small-screen-themed property to Las Vegas. Believe it or not, there were actually plans to build an entire resort based on the classic 1960s TV show and 1990s films, The Addams Family. Other than a few pieces of concept art, not much was ever revealed about The Addams Family Resort and Casino, and although the hotel never became reality, in the year 2000, Las Vegas did see Addams Family slot machines hit the casino floor. 
In fact, they were the first gaming devices to be restricted under Nevada's then-new no-slots-for-tots rule, a regulation intended to ban slot machines based on material primarily intended for children. Under the rule, the Adams Family machines had to be placed in areas of casinos that weren't frequented by kids, such as entrances or all-ages attractions like movie theaters and arcades. Motorcycle fanatics might remember the Harley-Davidson Cafe, located just south of Planet Hollywood, with the massive Harley blasting out of the front of the building towards the Vegas Strip. But at one time, the famed bike maker had even bigger ideas for a full-on Harley-Davidson hotel. Planned for a site off the Strip, just east of the Palms on West Flamingo, the Harley-Davidson Hotel and Casino would have featured a giant casino and twin hotel towers designed to look like a pair of chrome exhaust pipes reaching into the sky. Playboy made a play at getting into the resort business, which, based on Vegas's reputation as Sin City, would have made perfect sense. Plans were hatched to build a Playboy Bunny-themed hotel and casino on the site where the Cosmopolitan currently sits. Although he never got the resort treatment, Hugh Hefner did eventually open the Playboy Club on the 52nd floor of the Fantasy Tower of the Palms in 2006. It shut down six years later. With the success of resorts like Paris, New York, New York, and the Venetian, you'd think that anything based on famous cities from around the world would be a no-brainer. Well, you'd be wrong. Las Vegas was almost home to City by the Bay, a San Francisco-themed resort and casino that was to be built on the site of the New Frontier, across Las Vegas Boulevard from what's currently home to the Wynn. The original plan would have included small-scale versions of Chinatown, Fisherman's Wharf, and the Golden Gate Bridge. Those plans changed to become Montro, a 2,800-room Swiss-themed resort and casino that would feature a 465-foot-tall observation wheel and play host to a second Montro Jazz Festival every year. It was intended as an upscale resort to compete with the likes of the Mirage, Paris, and Mandalay Bay. The project failed to get funding, and to this day, the property still sits vacant. London Las Vegas was the concept so nice, they tried it twice. The resort would have included replicas of London landmarks and attractions, including Parliament and Big Ben, the Tower Bridge, Piccadilly Square, Harrods Department Store, and more. First time around, developers planned to build on the site of the former El Rancho Hotel. Those plans failed, and that site is now home of the currently defunct Fountain Blue slash Drew Resort. Their second attempt was on a lot across Las Vegas Boulevard to the east of Mandalay Bay. That project got a little bit further along, in that they actually began construction on the Skyview Super Wheel, which was to be a part of the London Resort. Several Vegas developers also had big plans to take visitors to faraway places out of this world. The Moon Resort and Casino, proposed in 2002 as a 10,000-room, five-star, five-diamond luxury resort taking up 250 acres of land would have featured a replica of the lunar surface where guests could drive moon rover vehicles as well as a moon-themed decor, pools, spas, restaurants, and shopping. Estimated cost of the project was in the neighborhood of $5 billion. Starship Orion was another space-themed resort and casino proposed to be built on the former site of the El Rancho. 
It was planned as a huge hotel, casino, entertainment, and retail complex covering 5.4 million square feet. It was to feature seven separately owned casinos, each one being approximately 30,000 square feet, as well as 300,000 square feet of retail space and a 65-story hotel tower with 2,400 rooms. With an estimated cost of $1 billion, funding failed and the project was scrapped. And although it wasn't going to be a hotel, a casino, or a resort, this one definitely deserves attention. In the early 1990s, downtown Las Vegas was struggling to attract people, losing visitors to the massive new mega-resorts and attractions opening on the Strip. So, a group of Las Vegas businesses put the call out for ideas for a large-scale attraction to bring tourists downtown. Enter Gary Goddard, Hollywood producer, director, and co-founder of Landmark Entertainment a production company known for creating theme park attractions and live entertainment productions around the world. Goddard came up with the idea of building a full-scale replica of Star Trek's famed starship, the USS Enterprise. Plans for activities on board the Enterprise included live Star Trek shows, a full walking tour of the ship, multiple restaurants and bars, and much more. Engineering reports were completed to ensure construction of the structure was feasible and that the ship, including the massive upper disc portion, could withstand the high winds that Las Vegas often sees. Goddard and his team managed to secure the rights to Star Trek from Paramount Entertainment, with one caveat. Final approval on the project would come from the studio. The consortium of downtown hotel and casino owners who were involved in the project gave their blessing, approving the budget and the mayor of Las Vegas signed off on the project as well. According to Goddard, as far as he knew, it was a done deal. It all came down to the final meeting, and it was during that meeting that Paramount President Stanley Jaffe decided to shut it all down. Jaffe's concern was that if the project was a flop, the Enterprise would be in downtown Las Vegas forever, a, quote, looming monument to his big mistake. The Enterprise was dead. And in its place, downtown Las Vegas constructed the Fremont Street Experience, best known for its domed Viva Vision canopy. Goddard did eventually get to bring Star Trek to Las Vegas, though. In 1998, he opened Star Trek The Experience at the legendary Las Vegas Hilton. The fully immersive attraction included being beamed aboard the Enterprise, a simulated shuttlecraft ride, new footage of the cast of Star Trek The Next Generation shot exclusively for the attraction, and much more. That attraction shut its doors in 2008. I hope you've enjoyed this deep dive into some of the amazing hotels, casinos, and resorts that might have graced the Vegas Strip. If you want to learn more about the WWF Hotel and Casino, Titanic, Xanadu, and all the other dream projects mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes for articles, photos, and more. For more of Las Vegas's fascinating, bizarre, and sometimes tragic history, follow Sin City Stories on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at SCStoriesPod. Also, be sure to subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are released. Sin City Stories is written, researched, and hosted by Jeff Walker and is a production of Walker New Media online at walkernewmedia.com.